because I believe science might offer an answer to the curse of the Bambino. Why someone took so long to hire that guy is beyond me. Anybody who's not tearing their team down right now and rebuilding it using your model, they're dinosaurs. One of the great things about money is it, it buys a lot of things. One of which is the luxury to disregard what baseball likes, doesn't like, what baseball thinks, doesn't think. <laughs> it's a threatening, not just a way of doing business, but, it's, but in their minds, it's threatening the game. How can you not be romantic about baseball? All right, welcome to another Baseball Ops podcast with Top V. We're going back in again, guys. Going back in to overload high-intent weighted baseball training. I know... A lot of people are going to hate me for this, but why do I do this, guys? I do it because it's very educational on the aspects of player development. There's an underlying theme here of how do we develop players, and that's really why I really enjoy this topic. And on top of that, it really exploits, unfortunately, how misled and flawed baseball is um, because of the popularity of still high-intent weighted baseball training. I say it's gone down since... I've started pounding the payment about uh, the issues behind it, and this is just really the icing on the cake or the nail in the coffin here, showing that we have a plethora of knowledge now of what's going on, and basically all the fears that we've had or all the concerns I've had are definitely, definitely true, So, uh, but I'm going to leave it up to you. I'm going to leave it up to you. You listen to this. This is Alex, Dr. Manga here. He's I, I introduce him. He's a very smart mind and very involved in uh, the research behind the issues or the injuries behind high-intent weighted baseball training or overload training. So it runs pretty long, so let's just jump into it, and uh, I hope you get value out of it. Here we go. All right, Brent Porcio here, another exceptional guest, really excited to interview, and we're going to have some... Uh, another controversial talk uh, topic we're going to get into, which has been talked a lot about on Top Velocity, but some really revolutionary information. I, we have a revolutionary mind here with Alex Manga, who's currently a professor at Ferris State University for Business Strategy and has a PhD in Evaluation Research and Measurement Thanks, Alex, for being on the show. I appreciate it. Or should I call you doctor? <laughs> no, no, don't. <laughs> uh, glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me on, Brent. Yeah, I'm fired up. Um, met you through Rich uh, Dunno, who's everyone knows is the king of the hill. Great guy. Um, so appreciate him bringing us together on this. And you were a baseball player, weren't you? Yeah. So um, I played in Southeast Michigan uh, at a class B high school and then uh, went to Ferris State where I played on a team for a couple of years. Um, had a great opportunity there. Um, left and then went on to uh, get a, an opportunity to play a little bit of affiliated ball for about, oh, maybe four months until my arm was shot. I mean, my arm was pretty much shot before I got out of high school from uh, overuse. I was a lefty that was throwing, you know, near 80 uh, in high school, but threw a lot of curveballs, a lot of sliders. And so it was pretty destroyed by the time I so even got in. So you were a thumber? Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, can I tell a little story about that? Yeah. Um, 
So Rich and I actually met uh, when we both did Tom House's program together. And uh, I made the mistake on the second day of showing one of his USC students what I knew about throwing a curveball, which obviously we know two-thirds of America is still throwing it. And, uh, man, out of all these guys that were there, 30 guys, and there was uh, you know, Nolan Ryan's there. There's a couple big names there. Wow. I get called out at lunch. What? And I'm thinking, what? What did I do? <laughs> well, we just want to, you know, bring you to a different level of understanding on an effective way to throw a curve without ripping up your arm. And so they... Right then, they got into that conversation about uh, a karate chop curve. And, uh, man, I tell you, I got almost emotional about it, not in an anger sense, but uh, the other direction, because that's what ripped up my arm, literally. Well, But I didn't know there was an alternative. (laughs) And you probably threw it for many, many, many years. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many buckets of buffering I was taking in the 80s to try and get through a game. I know. I can't believe Nolan Ryan did those Advil commercials. That's probably why I took so much of it, too. <laughs> Who better, right? <laughs> well, it worked for him, right? Right. <laughs> well, good, man. Well, uh, great, great background with baseball. I think that's something we both share in common. Um, your PhD is really impressive. Evaluation, research, measurement. Talk about what that means <laughs> and, and how hard that was to get. So um, Western Michigan University, this cool little place in Kalamazoo, which is really the home of Elvis, you know, uh, because he spent more time there designing Gibson guitars than anybody else. But um, <laughs> Western Michigan is the home of the one of, well, I think it's one of the only programs in America that offers a PhD in interdisciplinary evaluation and measurement and research. And what the whole focus originally was was for uh, these graduates to go and provide program evaluation for the government, but they changed the program. So let's talk about it for a second. So you can't just evaluate a program by assessment and saying, okay, yeah, it's kind of, uh, it appears to be doing what it's supposed to do. When we do evaluation and measurement, we're actually figuring out through statistics and data and comparisons and standards whether this is actually doing what it's supposed to do instead of just it's functioning the way it was designed. Is it effective? Does it have an effect size that is recognizably coherent and showing that it can do what it's supposed to do? So instead of limiting it to government programs, they said, hey, you know, People in business would like to learn this, or people in other sciences would like to learn these techniques. And having an MBA and a business background, I thought this was perfect for my consulting roles that I was you know, doing at the time. So I got into the program, and I thought, honestly, well, this isn't going to be that difficult. These people are uh, as strict and you know, retentive as it could possibly get about being perfect with all your work. So, yeah, it took me uh, three years of coursework and another two years to write my dissertation. The dissertation is 340 pages long, and it was 
It was fun. So yeah, it was, it was very good and effective on evaluating anything and using measurement science to determine if this is what you should be doing. That's brilliant. So we really like where we're going with this. So we got a ex minor league ball player who destroyed his arm and we have a PhD in basically someone who could figure out why to the to the point of why he destroyed his arm. So did you ever put those two together? Did you ever say, okay, I want to take this knowledge and this degree that I have in research and evaluation and measurement, and I want to try to figure out why um, I, I tore myself up in baseball. Did it ever go in that direction or just a little bit? No, during – so when you're doing your coursework, you're trying to fall back on things that you know, um, and you're – you're also practicing the models of evaluation. So actually, uh, pitching was one of the things that I jumped into. And so back at that point, I was doing the same thing everybody else was doing. I was looking at the biomechanics of the pitching process, and I was looking at what I was being taught by House and saying, okay, how do these domains interact? And trying to determine where people were going wrong in terms of um, losing their own nerves and having to have Tommy John. So at that point, uh, in that particular process, you know, we, we'd all kind of come to the same conclusion that a lot of it was um, A, technique, and B, overuse. So back when I was doing that, I was taking a lot of uh, ASMI's numbers and putting them into different statistical frames and doing what we call meta-analysis. And so I was getting effect sizes on different uh, things that were measured to determine if we all had the same idea, if this was pointing to direction regressively. So, you know, in statistics, when you're doing correlations and things, it it can be confounding because the correlations don't always tell you what direction things are actually pointing. They actually just tell you you have a relationship. Let me give you the best one that we can all wrap our heads around. The ACT-SAT does not point a direction of whether a student will be successful in this first year of college. It says there's a strong relationship between higher scores and students that are successful in college. That's it. But it doesn't say that there's, we don't know which one's going which way. Well, same thing with a lot of the data that we were getting. Um, so, so what it means, on paper, it looks like somebody took a piece, a bunch of sand and threw it right. at a paper blot, right? And so we didn't get the linearity we were looking for on a lot of that meta-analysis, which really made me scratch my head. Which well, one let is me tell, the problem? I want to tell the audience what a meta-analysis Meta-analysis is just a, basically a conglomerate of research, like pulling a lot of research together and then looking at it from a big picture. How is all this research working together? Are we finding correlations across, um, you know, through this evidence? Is that correct? Yeah, you're heading in the right direction. We What we have to do in a meta-analysis is we have to decide what what our goal could be with it. Do we want to find a strong effect size in predictors 
or in correlations or in means. What are we going to do with that information? So I was looking for predictors. I was looking for regressive relationships. So that means when I went looking for the data, I had to try and pick up all data that was predictor, predictory, something that was causing this to happen. So there was a regressive uh, inference made. And I picked up, I don't know, it was a 30 of them. Went through, now, I didn't publish this because here's the problem with um, the way I did it. It was, it was strictly laboratory. But you need to have one or two different people working on it at the same time. And you have to have what we call raters with rules. So in other words, just a guy like me picking something like this up and saying that, okay, this meta-analysis does or doesn't show something isn't very ethical because I could have stacked the deck, right? So you need two or three people doing it to make, and you have rules of how you're going to include these studies, right? So I didn't do any of that because I was doing it in a laboratory. So I went through all this. I grabbed as much as I could. I wasn't being picky. I just grabbed anything I could off ASMI and uh, plugged and played it into the programs that we have. And uh, we learned a little bit. The biggest thing was uh, the one that was had an extraordinarily strong effect size was uh, overuse, right? Mm -hmm. So... My presentation, I think, uh, at that point for the evaluation segment was on uh, pitchers that are overusing their arms. Which is really common today, so kind of takes <laughs> us to the State of the Union of baseball today. What would you say our biggest problems are in baseball? Um, obviously, overuse is one, um, um, all, all the way up the ranks. I mean, is this obviously something that you find is a problem all the way up the ranks? Why is overuse a problem? Do you have any opinions or information on that and let's let's go in this direction well i mean in general terms you know uh a lot has changed i mean the environment you know when i like i talked to you when we first met the 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 entire environment's changed from 20 years ago of how we're prepping our pitchers how pitchers are prepping themselves the the different training techniques that they're using from either weight to long toss to overload training um, to how much they're playing. Um, even here in Michigan where we're, we have four seasons, we're watching kids play baseball almost year-round. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're talking about kids that are playing the high school season, then a short summer season – then a fall season, and then they're going right back in the gym in winter and running with some program, whether it's a velocity program or just a training program in general. So the arm's not getting a lot of rest, okay? And here's how I got into the game here. Uh, a couple gentlemen found out that I did some research with Rich, uh, some basic uh, literature review more than anything else. And said, hey, we like what you wrote. We like what you're saying and your approach. Can you produce, you know, a model for us, an evaluation model? And I said, I don't know, maybe. Let's let's experiment with it. 
So the first iteration at this was taking a look at the biomechanics that people were using and just running a ton of data and statistics on it. It's kind of taking the information that you get with your work and then throwing it into some serious regression and saying, hey, odds are, uh, based on what we see with this group of people over here that are that have failed with with bad arms, this is this these when we line these numbers up and we run correlations and t-tests, these are alike, these are different. That worked pretty good, but um, we knew that there was more that we could get, so we actually started digging a little bit deeper to get uh, a more, you know, bioscience um, look at what actually is happening with our athletes internally. So I sat down with um, a, uh, a doctor at U of M Hospital, and she's just a phenomenal research scientist, MD, is what she is. And I said, you know, every you know, the orthopedics have a group of tools that they use to measure and to analyze and to try and develop, you know, some synthesized version of what took place or can take place. But my instincts tell me that this is only part of the story. And she said, that's really funny you're saying that because we were just having this conversation. It's not, you know, it's it's the orthopedics, it's the trainers, it's the sports docs in general. They are really good at what they know and good at fixing things. Um, they're good at wrapping their heads around what they can see. Unfortunately, they're not using every tool possible that, you know, her perspective was that they're not using all the tools. And so we began to discuss different options and opportunities for people uh, to apply to athletes and what they're actually doing on the Olympics, the Olympic committees with some of the running athletes. So she gave me about four different techniques that were bloodborne. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that I am strapped with an NDA, like I told you, but I'm gonna I can go so far. I had a conversation yesterday. So when we look at hormones and blood we can tell a lot of things about what's going on internally. And these can be after the fact, or these can be before, okay? So let me give you some examples. When somebody has a heart attack, it sparks a hormone in your body, and it takes a hospital about 10 minutes to figure out if that hormone's present to know if you had a heart attack. For example, my father had a heart attack in 96, but we didn't know, he was walking around with this thing hospitalized him because his EKG didn't look quite, quite right. They did a blood test and said, we, we, he had a mild heart attack because of this hormone. And so there's a couple markers in the bloodstream that we can use to measure certain things uh, relative to muscle injury or stress. Um, there's other things that are happening today that I can't share with you because they are proprietary, but other markers that we can use and techniques to measure to say you are clearly breaking down products inside your arm, the muscle, the tendons, etc. And you're doing it at this rate. And you're doing it 
to this degree. And the problem with the tendons and ligaments and things is that they're not repairable. They don't just like repair. So um, this has been very interesting. So we, we ran a good pilot study this winter and learned quite a bit about uh, what overload training is, is doing compared to a control group uh, that was just uh, doing the standard, uh, you know, training program that I think that most D2 colleges or D3 or D1 are doing. So, uh, so at this point, like a little summary. So you started to look more into factors that were defining or measuring um, overuse, um, which, which led you into the blood work, right? Um, right. Because obviously, like you said, that, that's a big... Uh, correlation um, to to injury is overuse, um, yeah. and so now you've gone into <clears throat> doing research into a popular form of training, um, which I, I like to look at as an extreme form of training, which is overload training, specifically at a high intent where it makes it extreme, because that more than likely could tell you a lot about what overuse is doing to the arm or um, is, is it something that contributes to overuse? Is that why you, you looked into overload training? Well, it's so when you're doing evaluation and research, you're looking at what the current problem is in the industry, right? So the problems in the industry are pretty clear. One, you've got uh, team owners with I don't know how many pitchers in their systems. I'm guessing it's 60 to 80. At one point, I heard 60 to 80. Um, I had heard it, it costs a million dollars to bring a pitcher up to the bump by the time they're done with AAA and they get there. That's a lot of money that these owners are putting out. I don't know if that's factual. This is what I've heard, so I, I'll caveat it. But if that's the case, we look back at, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. In the spike in Tommy John during 14 and 15, and try to figure out, wow, what, what actually is causing this big spike? Now, it appears it may have come down, but I'm not sure because nobody truly has data that is lining up with anybody's data. So MLB.com has some data. Hospitals have data. We don't know for sure, but we know everybody's agreeing it peaked in 14. So all of this occurred where we had the, the TJs peaking. Um, we looked at what changed in the industry. We know that a lot of athletes that were in the system between minor league and major league had been playing um, in more than one season. They'd been playing in two to three, okay? So there's your overuse, you know, just by speculation. Also, right? also too, to add, this is the wave of kids that were more than likely the first wave of the year, year-round travel ball guys. Right, um, exactly. So it's it's fairly safe to assume that um, – one of the one of the key contributors there could have been overuse. Then we're seeing the overload training as another moderator here. 
And people that are paying the bills are saying, wow, what risk factors are ahead of us at this point when we're floating this many pitchers and paying this much money? And the average right now on a pitcher getting through, you know, as a pro is five years, six years, right? So that's like the average. That's not a lot of return on your investment, right? So that's these are this is the problem. Uh, so that what, what do you think of this? I think this is how we got here. So the game, like you said, changed twenty years ago, and more than likely, it's because we went to the the sh- we shortened the the amount of innings that a starter would throw on average. We went from what seven to maybe five to six now. So. You know, and and if you go back past twenty years, we went nine, you know, to five or six now. So what you just did is you took an athlete that was throwing enduring a lot of pitches to now not having to endure as many pitches. So you you, you change the the composition really of the pitcher. You made him a more anaerobic athlete because right. now he doesn't have to throw as much. So when you do that, because he can be more anaerobic, he can now be more powerful. He can put more effort into those pitches because there's less of them. Um, and, and they didn't really ch- change the, the recovery times. I mean, the Rays are trying to go to a four-man rotation. But, tip, you know, we brought down the innings, and we actually kept the five-day rotation. So uh, it allowed them to throw harder, and, which is more effective. So, and, and then we have this, this, these other pitchers who are short relievers, you know, closers, same thing. They're not throwing a lot of innings, and they can be more anaerobic, more powerful. So now we bring in more trauma, right? So there is trauma through endurance, but there's also a different type of trauma through intent, and ultimately that is leads to injury. And that's probably uh, when the the injury rate started to climb is when we changed the pitcher into that anaerobic pitcher, and then on top of that, we in the youth ranks at the young ages we started promoting them to to throw more often, and then at the same time trying to throw harder. And it's just the perfect storm at this point, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So you're at you're right on cue. Um, here's one. Here's one of the problems. Um, 1995. Let's just go back there for a second. 1995. Team owners, docs, trainers. They knew how to scale the predictability of an athlete. They knew how to, you know, wrap their mind around what they can ex- reasonably expect out of each athlete that they were bringing through the system based on nearly a hundred years of we'll call it traditional experience. Is that, is that fair? That was all well and good and it worked pretty well for them. They could mitigate their risks and they could keep their risks at some tolerable level. Well, since it's changed in 10 years and now more, it's hard to wrap our heads around it. So the key now is to try and understand if I've got these athletes that are pitching so much and they're doing overload training, what are my risk factors here? And how do I possibly wrap some bound of you know probability that they're going to get into the show and pay me back for my investment? That's really where we're at. And let's go into overload training. What is overload training? It's loading the body to force an adaption. That's as simple as we could say. But 
The problem is, is there are many ways we could do that. For example, my approach, I like to load with medicine balls, two hands. I don't want it to isolate one joint. I want it to be multi-joint overloading. But unfortunately, trending today in the game, it's very common to overload two joints, elbow and shoulder. So talk about the complications. Well, ultimately, that's what you want to look into because that's a trend now. We already have, we could say fairly that there's a pattern of injury due to the skyrocketing injury rate as we change these pitchers to be more high-velocity guys. We have a pattern of injury in the shoulder and elbow. There's a good chance. There's a high probability. You play this game long enough, you're going to have a shoulder-elbow injury. And then now we're trying to, to help and improve the anaerobic athlete on, in the game, the trend is to overload the shoulder and elbow. Would, would that be an introduction to overload training right now? Well, let, let me stay on this side of this for a second. So the doc that I'm working with, I'm working with three of them, actually. One of them's out of U of M Hospital. She also serves on the Olympic Committee for Physicians. Here's what she told me. This makes a lot of sense. It's very clear. Look. We can get athletes running a mile that are phenomenal in terms of their speed and their athleticism and ability to run a very low time mile. But what we're doing more so today than what we ever have is determining if that athlete should be doing that. Just because they can do it doesn't mean they should be doing that. There may be markers in that they put into their tests to determine if this is safe for them to be doing with their heart or their cardio palm, whatever. And they've actually changed athletes' directions based on, especially particularly like long-distance runners, basketball players. We've seen basketball players drop dead on the floor, right? Mm -hmm. So – just because they can run up and down the court, there may be something in internal that says this isn't safe for you. It isn't a good idea. You're putting yourself at a great amount of risk doing this. Right. That I mean, we have that we didn't measure before because we didn't know. Right. Well, right? I mean, and we're, I just did that podcast with Dr. J about DNA, and the DNA tells you a lot about that. Are you actually built and engineered to be an uh, you know aerobic athlete or an anaerobic athlete, or you're going to have your, your heart, how's your heart, your cardiovascular system going to support your training, stuff like that? That's exactly right. So I've got uh, Jim and Joe. Joe throws 98, didn't need overload training, didn't need um, hardly anything to get to that number. He naturally did it. Jim comes in and he's using a modified behavior program call it whatever you want, he inches his way up to 95 miles an hour. That's great. What we're reasonably assuming at this point, and we're beginning to wrap a strong uh, bound of confidence around, is that when Jim comes in from modified behavioral training, throws 95, 98, he doesn't necessarily do it as long as Joe. Number one. Number two, his risk factors are, based on statistics, incredibly higher. Okay? So for us that are investing money into that person, we have to understand where he falls in this distribution. So we created 
a normal distribution, which you know has four four quadrants, quartiles, right? So depending on how long he's thrown, how long he's trained and overload trained, we can place him in that quartile with a proper z-score and say, this is where he's at relative to a predictor of risk and sustained success. You follow? And that allows us to understand numerically, hey, this guy is low, medium, high risk. All right. And it's so far the model is working really well. And um, we're going to take it to another level. So, and so obviously you've been doing this with overload training, correct? You've been looking yeah. at the, this same model with overload training, those who um, do this form of training, what yeah. happens to the risk and what happens to their success over time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that the overload training can – uh, we'll say it, it pops. Uh, I'm using some of the vocabulary that I've seen. <laughs> I, I don't get on Twitter too much. It man. unleashes velocity. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, so it, it pops these different muscle groups and flexations and internal rotation. And, but, and, and right. Because it, you know, and unfortunately, I think it falls, the, the overload training that's specifically on the shoulder and elbow, it falls into this misconception that. Enhancing the plyometric ability of the arm increases velocity. Yeah, it does, but is that the best way? And if you look at the kinetic chain, the efficiency of the kinetic chain, it really isn't the best way. Kibler and Chandler calculated that a 30% or a 20%, sorry, decrease in the kinetic energy delivered from the hip and trunk to the arm requires a 34% increase of the rotational velocity, the rotational velocity of the shoulder to put the same force on the hand. So they're saying, if I'm decreasing the kinetic energy coming from the hip and trunk to the arm, I have to overcompensate by almost twice the amount, 20 to 34, right. just to keep the same force in the hand. So is it the best approach to train the arm to be a plyometric force generator? No, it's not. So unfortunately, I think overload training on the shoulder and arm, I mean, think about it, weight training is overload training, but overload training on the shoulder and the arm is an inefficient or a flawed approach just to start. And then not only that, you take approaches and camps that are doing it in an extreme level, and now they're falling into the data that you're finding. So when parents ask me, should I do this? I'm quite, I quite honestly ask them, what are your goals? I mean, if your goals are just to have a, a lot of fun in high school and blow some people away for a X amount of years, hey, maybe that's maybe it could work for you. But what's X? You're right. But what's X? That's it's a good question, uh, Brent. We I don't think we have enough data right now to say what X is, but we do know we do know that comparatively, if if I had two products to buy, and I had Joe throwing 95 as easy and breezy as he can step up to the mound, that's a product I would want. If I had Jim coming in that had all this overload training to get there, and he showed me a track record of throwing 80, 83, and he plateaued at 83 for four or five years, and then all of a sudden took an overload training program and blew blew the doors off of his, we'll call it, uh, you know, the, the glass ceiling at his speed, I'm going to be suspect of that. Let's right? Talk, let's, talk, let's talk more why, because I think that's a great thing we need to go into and talk about 
the approach specifically at Major League Baseball and how they how they run player development. But let's talk about the 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 study and the work you've done as much as you can you can disclose. I know you have a, an, an NDA on your back, but talk about what you've seen as best you can when you get into some form of high intent overload training. What is happening to your body as opposed to just throwing a baseball? Well, I think you know that when when you start getting into overload training, you're breaking down mitochondria, you're breaking down tendons, you're stretching, you're flexing beyond what, you know, God was meant for you to do in a sense. You know, if I could throw that out there, I'm sure I'll get ridiculed for that. But I think that uh, you've got a certain amount of fast and slow twitch muscles. And I'm not going to get into that science because that's not my background. But I think that you have a natural innate body position and a position on a map overload training can take you past that position but it does not come without a cost and if uh if anybody thinks it does um it's kind of like the movie i just watched this weekend you know um concussion uh god that was a great movie with will smith and talked about um uh, the CTE problem that has happened in the NFL. Nobody wanted to own up to it. Nobody wanted to look at it and dig into the science and wrap their head around it. Now only almost every NFL player that's uh, passing away is donating their brains to science because it's a real thing. I don't know. I don't think we're quite there yet with our arms and pitching, but I think the scenario is similar. People are not ready to be honest with ourselves however i will say this i've seen the high schools now begin to implement a pitch count and strictly implement it which is blowing me away i think this happened in the last three or four years and i'm thinking of myself which studies showed it doesn't even really work that well pitch counts no because you know why they've got the they've got uh athletes that they generalize every athlete to be similar, and they're putting them on a 75-pitch pitch count, and they give them three days to rest. Where there's a DPD, a DPT that I met at the, I went to ASMI's baseball and injuries course, and he did studies on um, predictors of injury based on the increase in volume, and it was really, really strong. So basically, he found I think it was like up to 30 percent of an increase. Uh, you know, your probability of injury started to really go up. So they were just basically saying it doesn't really how much matter how much you throw. It's a, if it's if it's a big jump from your previous throwing outing, that's that's more the predictor to injury than how much you threw overall. Quite possibly, yeah. I haven't studied that, but I can I can tell you as a former pitcher that left his arm out on the field. If I got over 75 pitches and my arm started to hurt, I just kept going right through it. Right, exactly. I mean, I can't tell you how many pitchers I went full count on. <laughs> so, right. you know, I mean, you know, the volume of pitching that I was doing in high school per game, uh, a seven-inning game was ridiculous, I'm sure. It was in the one – I'm sure I was throwing over 120 often in seven innings. So talk So talk about the, the blood markers that you – have looked at um, with the arm breaking down specifically with the overload training that maybe can paint a picture 
of the kind of trauma that occurs between throwing a regular baseball to high and maybe you know high intent overloading so there's just you know there's a couple that are pretty obvious out there you could google them that are out there um these are markers that are for hormones that are released um that can trace uh if if you've essentially if you've damaged your muscles um it can't tell you quite how much um and it can't tell you anything about the past it can only tell you uh what what you did during that particular segment of time but there's other measurements that i can't share with you that we can also do that are even they're one-to-one they're digital they're they're like blueprinting your entire body and they can show exactly what happened during that training those are pretty remarkable results when you get them they show you exactly what this pitcher did and what that pitcher did and the difference between the two of them is remarkable and when you begin to look at that kind of data over test retest um segment of time i mean the test the, the pilot study we just ran was over a four-month period of time and we had several measurements and uh it was it was very uh it was very convincing that the overload training for sure was putting a much higher load uh on the elbow and shoulder and was breaking the uh, tissue down much to a much greater extent um, and I'm gonna put tissue out there because I don't want to say too much and then step on uh, an NDA I'm standing on so okay. um, so basically but, you're saying that there's <clears throat> there's good evidence that there should be caution uh, with an overload approach specifically a high intent approach because there's there's good evidence that you really can't get into that this is is something that's not you know sustainable over a career. I'm saying that if you compound if you compound these things, where you've got a three to four season pitcher that's he's doing the the high school season, he's doing one or two in the summer, he's doing one in the fall, he could be doing a winter season, and then you add overload training on top of it because. You want to get through high school with your kid throwing 85, 88 miles an hour. I'm saying that it's if that's your goal, great. If your goal is to play until you're 30 or 40, you may want to reconsider how much of that you're doing. And you may want to consider the fact that a person coming into your life in the future that wants to offer you money is going to look at what you've done in your past. And he's going to try to draw a inference to how risky you are to put a lot of financial money into. So it's kind of like with DNA. We can tell it's probably more in what we were talking about with Dr. J and the epigenetics that can show basically not how old you are. It's really a physical age of your body. So you could be 25, but you could have really abused yourself and the DNA it's probably the epigenetics profile would say your body's actually at, at a, 
an age of 45 due to the health, the current state uh, of your body, you could put that probably on the arm uh, and using some of these predictors by saying it's not really that you have so many bullets in your arm. It's just that your arm, you can age your arm a lot faster. Meaning if we looked in the arm of say someone who's played all year round for five years and done a lot of heavy high intent overload training, we would look into that tissue and be like, man, this, this tissue looks 15 years older than the actual age of the person. Wouldn't that be correct? Yeah. I mean, here's, here's how we're going to approach this. Um, for what I've done, we're, you know, we've got four docs on this. We're going to look at how you're responding to overload training, how your body's responding to different pitch counts at your velocities. We're going to run these tests and evaluations. As a group, we're going to say, hey, your body's responding well to this. You're doing fine. Keep going. No problem. Or we're going to look at what the data is pouring out between blood work and the exoskeletal uh, measurements. And we're going to say, hey, you've got a ton of edema. The edema is coming from what we're seeing here in the blood. So outside is the same as inside. We're seeing the same thing. You're not a guy that should be throwing 95 miles an hour, even though you can do it. It's tearing you apart. That's what we're trying to tell you. Does that make sense? It's not going to be just my opinion. It's not going to be just the final data analysis. It's going to be four research medical docs looking at it. And that includes a sports med person and an ortho. I think it's right. But what if I came along with my approach and I said, okay, what I like to do with my guys, because I went through that. I went through probably, you know, I had the rotator cuff tear at 18, you know, worked my my way into indie ball at 26 once I got my body back. And by 28, 29, uh, my arm was just shot. Like, because what I had put it through after the rotator cuff tear just to get it back. But still, I don't think I should have been up there playing. The reason I was up there playing at 26 to 28 is because I took that Kibler and Chandler study and I took it to the max. I increased the, the energy coming up through my legs. So my arm was just a funnel. It was just regulating that. Uh, so if you have that guy, say in a major league organization, you said, okay, look, the, you throwing 95 is tearing you up. Is there any way I could come in and prove to you? I mean, obviously this would be a great study and say, okay, is it possible? Because I believe we can take that guy and get him to a healthier 95. Do you believe that that's possible? Yeah, I mean, so uh, there's there's different things. Well, let me, let me go backwards to that rotator cup. So do you think that was, you know, was that technique? Or do you think Surely. That- I had the worst mechanics I've ever seen. I did a show on it. It was garbage. And mainly because my hips are so tight. And there's studies that show a one-to-one relationship to your hip tightness to arm injury. So my hips weren't able to rotate, which screwed all my technique up. And then I over, I del, I, I, I cocked my arm extremely late. I, the torques that were hitting my arm were massive for, for the amount of speed I was throwing. Yeah. So um, to answer your question, there's different medicines that are legal that we could put an athlete on to reduce the swelling. And that could have a, you know, a real dramatic effect on all those markers and be positive. And that would be good if it was minimized. But if we had to put them on a large regiment 
to make it happen so that they don't get a lot of, we'll call it disproportionate swelling, then all we're doing is band-aid a real problem here. And the are real you, are problem you, is- Are you promoting ice at this point? Are you saying ice is a good thing? <laughs> yeah. That's an interesting topic all in itself right now. But um, God, I've been watching that, but I don't step in it. But um, so, you know, the point is, is, uh, you know, are you designed to throw 95? Really? I mean, just because uh, we develop uh, some exercises and some training that has got you there, are you really designed to do it? And, and if and maybe that's not a question I need to be asking, but as a person hired by an MLB group, that's a question I need to answer for them. Is this person designed to be throwing this fast? Or are we looking at some artificial synapse that really shouldn't be there? Well, I look at it this way. I mean, for example, I got like Cody Hall. He's 30 years old. He was a 100-mile-an-hour guy. Comes into my facility. Can't break 89. He had some back issues. We cleaned that up, which that didn't allow him to really – that allowed you – know, he didn't keep his legs strong because of the back issues. So his legs got weak, and his ball speed just started dropping. So I rebuilt his legs. I rebuilt what was working for him at 100 miles an hour, and the guy's back to, you know, mid to upper 90s now. So I, I think there's many ways we can get guys to some of these speeds. It's just if it gets to the point, like to your argument, if it gets to the point to where we're having to tap into the arm, the ability for the arm to handle more stress, we're screwed. And I think that's yeah. where programs are flawed. They go right to the arm. They go, hey, let's get your velocity in the arm. And you're saying, man, you just put it, you just shortened your shelf life considerably. And wh what I'm saying is, you're right. I would never do that because it didn't work for me. I would go elsewhere in the in the other joints of the body to maximize energy up the kinetic chain. And and it, the last resort is going to the arm because you're right. If we go to the arm, I have to shorten his shelf life to do it. And that's the okay. problem is the majority of kids out there today and the majority of now pro ball bringing in overload approaches are all they're doing is shortening the life of these pitchers up at that level that they're spending millions of dollars on. And the interesting part is uh, when I when I brought this up to some of those guys, they're like, show me the data. Well, I've got the data now, but I'm not sharing it with you because, quite honestly, I'm not giving it away. But the data does show that when we measured the body's reaction to that training, it wasn't favorable. How about How about let's say it that way? And we didn't just do it with, um, we'll call it exoskeletal studies. We did it with internal studies that were quite, we're talking about nucleic, okay? These are right on, spot on. These are what surgeons are using to determine if they're going to do things in the brain, we'll call it. So these are very accurate measurements, and these are very reliable measurements. So... You know, I think it's uh, – Yeah, I mean, I, the, the point is, is you're saying something to major league teams. They should hire you to do that same type of studies on their million-dollar pitchers that they're running aimlessly through these overload approaches because you might be considerably shortening their shelf life, and you know it takes time to get to major league baseball. I would, um, I would say that there will be a day when – what we're putting together here will be a common product for every MLB team. I would say that that's probably true. Yeah. Because it's just a, uh, it's just, it's, it's such a, um, I would say 
way to prevent unnecessary risk and a way to safeguard yourself as a business owner against investing into something that's going to fail. Well, I think, Alex, this is where we have to work together because you can't just tell a team or anyone, you can't just diagnose them. And in a way, you're diagnosing the problem, which is great. I mean, you got to start there, but you're right. They yeah. need an answer. And I, yeah. I think this goes back to what's going on. So, you know, going back to the 20-year mark when we said the pitchers, because we shortened their, their amount of pitches, they became more anaerobic, which then allowed them to throw harder. And now we have a, a uh, you know a lot of trauma, a, a pattern of injury due to the increase in velocity, because there's also direct correlation of velocity to right. arm injury. And and what? But the thing is, is I think baseball's known since the beginning of time that we play so many games that the only way these guys are going to survive and, and have a long shelf life, have a 20-year career like David Wells did, is if we teach them how to reduce their efforts. Baseball's doing that been forever. You know the to the traditional balance points. Uh, or you know, come to a balance point, slow your strides. We, I've seen that being coached all the way up at the major league level. So that's that at the major league level, they obviously know the answer. Even now that we're we've gone in the wrong direction, and you're proving that we've gone in the wrong direction with this overload trading. That is, we've got to create more low effort. We need to recruit more and develop more low effort pitchers. But the problem is, you can't use the old tactics, the old strategies of balance points slowing their strides, reducing their effort, because then you have a velocity problem because that's where we're stuck. That doesn't well, work. So we have to come up with a better solution. And that's why I said we, I got to come into this because using the kinetic chain, building it through the ground up is going to allow them to create the velocity, increase the velocities or keep the velocities up without trashing the arms and shortening their lifespan. And so based on what you said, Coming to a balance point, which is ironic because uh, that was the first thing they taught me up at uh, college. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, it's such a fact. But so some some pitchers can the, – the problem that the, – the bigger 30,000-foot problem here is that, darn it, some pitchers can make that work, right? And some pitchers have made that work and made a career out of it. So it, it flies in the face of, you know, better judgment. But the truth is, you come to that balance point and you spring out and try to get to that velocity you want to. And for many players, it's going to put an unnecessary loading somewhere and shorten the life of your pitching. So that's part of the problem here, um, really, is understanding that some some pitchers can can get away with overload training. And they just have the body that can handle it. It appears some to a lot of pitchers cannot. I would say guessing, purely guessing at this point, two-thirds of the athletes that are using it probably should not be. If they want to have a prolonged uh, career in baseball till they're in their 30s as a professional, that would be my opinion from what I'm seeing. If they want to, and what I'm talking about here specifically is this, if they want to throw year-round, throw hard year-round, and do an overload training program, I, I, most most of the athletes doing that are going to shorten their career significantly. That's what I'm seeing. 
So, and so, so how so what's going to change this trend? Like what's going to change the trend all the way down to the low levels that you know, high intent weighted balls overload training is not a good approach. It's a Hail Mary approach and you're not going to get much life out of it. How do we trickle this down? How do we get this into baseball? I mean, to to wake people up. Do these studies need to get out there cuz they don't really want to come out cuz we got all these NDAs on. Them. How do we get this information down there? I you know, those NDAs aren't going to last forever, Brent. I mean, but the point of it is is that um you know, they invested in me and so I'm 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 sticking with my no, promise, no, but I get it, yeah. Yeah, but the uh the fact of the matter is is that I think that um people will begin to hear about other people using different techniques. And I think eventually you're going to see sports med people jump into this and say, Hey, we're going to send you for some blood tests and we're going to check for a couple markers here um, and see if this is occurring. We're going to check edema and see what's causing the edema. And we're going to figure out if you've got a, a unnecessary amount of edema or if you're normal in terms of what you're seeing in that elbow and that, uh, you know, uh, shoulder, you know, and I think, I think that's that's going to start occurring because you can't you should not engage a really good athlete or any athlete into one of these overload programs without keeping a close eye on things and and what I'm seeing is interesting is uh it's kind of like you buy the kit and you let your coaches at your facility just run it hey let us know if you get your sore arm or sore shoulder well guess what it's too late it's too late. And so, I don't know. And the reason why I'm in it is because I'm passionate like you. My million-dollar freaking Ireland set sail when my elbow cut loose, yeah. right? right exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and I don't want to see these kids. Uh, I see kids all the time being overpitched, and I, I have to walk away now because I've had some heated discussions with coaches that probably shouldn't be coaching, you know. They, they And they just – they didn't even have – any knowledge of really how to protect a pitcher. So what do, what do these kids do that they have a, a coach in college or high school telling them they got to do these high intent weighted ball programs and they really, they're worried about their careers. They're worried that this is going to take years off their career and they really don't want to do it. What do you tell those kids? Cause you have all this evidence that says that, that, that it is, they're risking good years in their long, hopefully long career. What, what do you tell these kids? You know, it's interesting. Um, some of these guys that are doing it, um, they've they've done their own studies. They've done their own micro, what I'd call basic. So when when you do, I actually I actually teach uh, research methods at the university. So I'm teaching that to a, a master's program right now. So there's there's a lot of different research you can do. Um, one of them is exploratory research, uh, exploratory research, which it's just that we're exploring. And so this this type of research isn't bound by sample sizes and random control. It's it's more bound by just safe data and safe measurements. Well, what we're seeing come out of what we're seeing come out of these we'll call them overload training houses is nothing but exploratory research. Now, here's the big danger. If you take exploratory research and then flash it to the public and say this is 
an experiment or research we ran, they take it and run with it as gospel that it can be generalized to the entire population. And that is the farthest thing from the truth because there's no power to it. There's absolutely no precision to it. And the problem is, is that what they're doing maybe on the West Coast shows up in Indiana. And if I have a conversation with an athlete, I say, be careful. Oh, they got tons of research that says this is harmless. Let me see it. And it's got N of 7, N of 25. <laughs> Which is N participants. I mean, it, it, it's, it's right. Just well, not- unfortunately, they've taken the, the ASMI study, which is very exploratory, on the uh, torques and kin- kinematic and kinetic uh, parameters of 5, 6, 7, I think, ounces. Or maybe it went to 9. And at the end, in the conclusion, ASMI says, maybe beneficial, maybe risky. And they grab the maybe beneficial, and now they put it everywhere. Dr. Andrews says weighted balls are good for you. Seriously, this is how it goes I off. That, I saw that myself, and I think that's about the point I got off of uh, uh, Twitter. Right, so I'm sitting here going, it. you know, I, I need to call up. I mean, I could get him on the line. I need to talk to Dr. Andrews and be like, can we do something about this? Because they're all taking it as you're a big proponent of high-intent weighted balls. Right. No, you are right on. You are right on track with that. There isn't. I mean, I'll I'll put my neck out here and say there isn't a good researcher that is going to say n of twenty five or n of fifty <laughs> is enough can be generalized to the entire population. Right. Not when we've got what hundreds of thousands of these athletes. There uh, isn't even really enough weighted ball studies on injury i mean we really just have one and then yours the one you've worked on but we only have one public with with reinald that reinald did and um it hasn't even finished so it hasn't really been published we so we really don't have enough research on this to give a definitive answer and for some reason everyone's going to take this as a reason why they should do high intent weighted balls but that should be a reason why not to because there's enough empirical evidence showing that something's going on and we need to figure this out (laughs) actually actually i'll tell you brent um there's what we call file drawer research which is where mine's at right now and there's more than you think that has been done on way and you're right and it's hidden it's hidden yeah they're just not published publishing it because people paid really good money for it. And, and um, they don't want it out because it gives them an edge, right? Because, hey. Yeah, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a very good game to play, is it? Yeah, I mean, but that's really, baseball. Yeah. So, the, so the point is, I mean, you you can say with confidence, it you should definitely, it it's a, should have a big cautionary tale on it when it comes to this form of overload training for development, player development, right? Yeah, I mean, every parent needs to be able to or athlete professional athlete is this the right thing for me question mark what are my goals question mark um it because no everyone way. thinks it's just about the ucl well i can blow it out three times look at johnny venters you know yeah. you know what the number one tear is i think in softball is labrums right and th- those are killers man i don't know how you play again with a, with a big labrum tear yeah I mean, so I was working with our softball players at the university to try and 
help them a little bit with their outfielders with their mechanics so that they weren't loading so hard on it. Um, but they're playing on such a short field, it's it's not like where we had the ability to run up a long way to yeah, a pro step. Everything's and, quick. Right. And so they they barely have enough time to even do a, a crow hop. But they they have labrum tears, rotator cuff tears. We're suffering from rotator cuff and elbow. And so it's all the same. And then and then Tom had the right idea going into football players, you know. Because uh, they're, they're, any ball throwing athlete, um, well, look, really, you're, you're bringing up Tom. Like, let's talk about this. Like, why did he, at the end of his career, push into weighted balls overload training? That blew my mind, and I didn't keep, I didn't, uh, I didn't stay that close uh, to his story. But when I did read that, I was absolutely me too. Uh, I was shocked. Because it for a person that was so fundamentally traditional, you know what I mean? I I was I was surprised. Um, well, he's been to be give him credit. He's been doing it for a long time. I mean, do you th- obviously do you think he's doing it a better way than most, or or what? I I didn't look at. I would I would say that uh, there's a high probability that he did it um, as cautiously as as he possibly could. You know. Um, because he was so about arm care and he worked so closely with Nike spark that it would surprise me that he may have done it at a really, really low rate to where he knew for sure he was safeguarded against any damage. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to say anything on his approach, his approach, his approach, but just across the board, I mean, Obviously, people know I speak out against it. So you could definitely give a confident yes that this is some form of training you probably shouldn't do for the average baseball player, right? I would say that um, if if you're if you've used long toss and you've used uh, lower half training techniques and you've done everything possible to get your velocity up and it's still not happening, then there might be a reason for that. But if you do go that route, there's a good chance you're shortening your career, right? <laughs> For sure. And so that's my whole point is, right. you know, if you've done all these other things and you've built you've built the foundation of having a high velocity arm action and it's just not happening, um, going into overload training could pop a lot of things and some <laughs> may be negative. It you yeah, know, right. and so I yeah I would say that not only but the other part of it is this. If it's working for you and you're doing that in conjunction with a four-season year, ultimately you're reducing your marketability, in my in my opinion, from what I'm seeing. Because there's no doubt we've only got so many tosses in our arms. At the same time, too, teams are drafting you or bringing you in on potential – and if they hear that you've been doing a weighted ball program for four years and that's their player development, they're going to go, well, what can we get out of him? He's already been doing it for four years, you know? Well, yeah. So what, what, I mean, what used to be in the system was, Hey, he's at, you know, we, you're on a six year path, we'll call it before you're ready to go up. Right. So we're, we're hoping you're going to develop uh, and get to where you want to, we want you to be at within six years. And, is that is that your understanding? Yeah. 
Definitely. So, you know, so if you came to them with four years of it already and you're throwing 89.90, yeah, they're definitely going to ask themselves, what more can we give you? you you've, you're you shooting nitrous into your arm now, right? Exactly. Yep. Yeah. And that's where you got to be careful. Um, because yeah, sure. unfortunately it, right now it's going to be more common that a professional team to get in velocity is going to put you on a weighted ball program than do anything else with you. So if you're already yeah. going in and they know you're a big weighted ball guy, it's going to be a less attractive to them that they can get more potential out of you. Well, and it's it that's one thing. The other is going to be what is your reliability as a product at this point? Because right. you've been playing three, four seasons, and you're pushing an overload training program for four years. I'm I'm going to worry as a team physician uh, as to the health of your arm and. What do we know about Tommy John? I mean, uh, you get Tommy John, I think, is there, I, I don't know for sure, it's like a third fallout that don't quite come back to where they used to be. Isn't that correct? So Yeah. Well, it's like an 80% or 85% the first time, and then it drops to like 30 40% on the second Tommy John, and then there's only a few to even ever come back from three. So Yeah, and so that's, that's all factored into, you know, the price they're going to put on you. So, so if, it's like, if not, you know, and I'm just thinking, I'm looking at someone, I mean, I hate to call a name up, but like, you know, Zach Britton, I've heard he's done weighted balls. He talks about him for a long time. Like ever since that big injury he had a few years ago, once again, he's still, you know, he's just thrown, just through the other day, first pin from rehabilitation surgery, he repaired a ruptured, oh, that was the ruptured Achilles in his body. So, okay, it wasn't related to his arm, but it, that needs to be done. Like we need to look at now, I think we have enough evidence to look at these pro guys that have been using weighted balls for a good amount of years now, and let's see the injury rates coming out of that. Wouldn't that be a good study? Well, what would be interesting is to mark those guys and see what their pitch counts are, and then also take a good look at what they're doing every day to try and keep their pitch counts up. Because you can work harder and harder at keeping your pitch counts up because we know that's uh, related to your anaerobics, right? Yeah. So it would be interesting to track those guys. Yeah, I agree with that. That's not that's something I haven't done. I've never been invited in to do that before. Well, you know, I think it's interesting. I think what we're finding is it's 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 more this data is being collected and you know, in the next ten years, we're gonna know a lot more about what we've been doing to ourselves and how we've trained in player development in baseball than we do now. And there's gonna be a lot more um I mean, I, I, I think it's going to – it's not something you want to get to in 10 years and then realize, wow, I just for the past 10 years I went the complete wrong way for a player or an organization. So I think there's enough evidence now to start making a good uh, – or getting a good big picture on what's going on to where you can start making some smarter choices in player development, don't you think? Yeah, I think it just comes down to common sense. I mean, you've got to give that arm a lot of rest. Uh as with any part of your body. You ever look at this thing they call pitcher droop no. when you look in the mirror? So you, you pitch for quite a few oh, years, like right? like throwing on me. But, but I, had, um, I had a chromioplasty. They took my – they shaved the chromium tip off, so my arm naturally now is going to hang lower. Oh, so that's a little different. All right. But for me, I didn't have surgery on my shoulder or elbow. But if I stand in front of the mirror, it definitely – I'm lopsided. Every person that's ever seen me with my shirt off is like, what happened? 
I mean, that's the physical change that takes place for throwing all those years. It's called a sulcus sign, I believe. It's it's how far your clavicle is sticking above your shoulder, and it's very common in pitchers. And you're right, it sh- yeah. and it links to evidence that throwing over time weakens the arm, and people don't understand that. I mean, Do you, see, you see where I'm going with that, though. Yeah. So, th- I mean, that's another evidential piece that says there's long term effects to throwing <laughs> and so you, you the i think the bottom line here is hey no you know what's crazy is there was a study they did that that pitchers i think in high school the average pitcher in high school had a weaker throwing shoulder than the general public really yeah i found that study that's really remarkable. I never heard that. Right. Well, that's why, I mean, it just plays into my narrative that you can't build velocity or a career off just throwing. It doesn't work that way. No. You've got to use those big, big muscles to right. give you. And you got to rebuild. You, you, you got to rebuild. And that's the thing is I think the misconception, a lot of the weighted ball camps said, hey, weight uh, overload training with a baseball or a weighted ball is uh, weight training for the arm. That's BS. It's completely oh. different. You know, the, yeah. the, the valgus stress is a lot more traumatic to the body than, you know, a, a flat flexion extension stress. It's, it's different. Totally. Yeah. All right. Well, All right. well that I was good, man. Up. I've got some students I got to get to. I know you but... do. Well, I really appreciate it. Any, any last words on this before, and I'll close it out? Yeah, I mean, sure. I think that what you're doing with your research, with the biomechanics – is priceless. Appreciate it. Uh, I think that if I had that back in the day, God knows what could have happened right. and changed. Um, people that are wishing their way into high velocity, um, I wish them the best of luck, and I know exactly what you're trying to do. I was a lefty, a pure lefty that barely got to 85. Believe me, if I could have mowed grass my way into or crawled on uh, glass to get to 90 I would have but um, it wasn't in the cards and it wasn't uh, part of God's gifts for me so be careful because everything comes at a cost yeah and I think we're we're definitely showing that now and um, I the other thing parting party note watch that movie concussion Brent okay because it'll help set your framework for your mission. It will. Perfect. I will. Good, yeah. good call. All right. All right. Let me end this right now. Here we go. Well, I don't know about you guys, but tonight I'm going to watch the concussion movie on football because I think Dr. Manga's nailed it. it there really is a strong comparison between the two. The kind of trauma it does to a career, does to a person's health. I know it's a lot worse with the brain, but um, it's the same when it comes to the lifespan of a career. And that's the sad part here. And that's what my goal in this is, is to really protect the kids that are being uh, subjected to this ignorantly without knowledge of the risks behind it. That's all I'm trying to do is put the risks behind it out there uh, and hopefully those getting involved can make a better, more educated decision. Dr. Manga is looking at more from a business perspective with teams that he can help them understand, is this a good risk uh, return? Or, you know, are they going to get a good return based on the risk? So 
two different perspectives here, but I think it painted a good picture for you to understand what you're up against with this form of training. So really enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe, uh, follow us, and stay tuned for our next one. Hopefully they just keep getting better. So we'll see you next time. Thank you.